0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of National Talent Identification and Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach at the Aspire Academy, James Baker. Despite James only coming on 18 months ago, I'm delighted to get him on for a part two. And ironically, this part two actually ended up leading to a part three because there was just so much information to uh, to cover based on James's new roles at the Aspire Academy. So in this episode, we dive into so many different areas from biobanding to growth and maturation So some of the talent ID testing that goes on out in Qatar and then how that translates to what goes on in the uh, the pathway, uh, the LTAD pathway at the Aspire Academy as well. So whether you work with youth athletes and have zero budget or you work with youth athletes and you have an Aladdin's cave of sports technology like the Aspire Academy like James, there's so much to take away from this episode. So I hope you enjoy it and I will chat to you soon. This episode of the Pacing Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Perch. Perch is velocity based training made easy and built for the 21st century. So, engineered at MIT, Perch uses compact 3D cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. So Perch passively collects velocity and power data, outputs it in real time to athletes and stores it for post-workout analysis. So Perch is the revolutionary and innovative product that enhances workouts, reduces injuries and most importantly saves time. Perch works with every level of organisation from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team, the NFL's New York Giants, military bases, high schools, performance facilities and even individual home gyms to name just a few so Perch is portable easy to install and intuitive to use making it ideal for every facility and every training goal no more pre-workout setup no more wearables no more broken strings set perch once optimize every rep every set and every training session for exclusive deals and offers tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash contact this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the costs of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So, used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasure U is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So, Measure U have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing, and sprinting longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website imEasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with James Baker. James, thank you so much for coming back on. I know it's only been February 2020 since last time we spoke, but I know things a couple of things have changed and we won't dive... Sh- fully into the uh into your background because you did that last time so anyone that wants a little bit of an update on on the full background they can they can jump over to that episode but like i say certain things have changed still in qatar but certain things have changed with the role would you mind giving us a bit of an update on on what's going on with you yeah sure so uh yeah for me now it's three and a
1: half years out here in qatar aspire uh, uh primarily working as a S&C coaching in track and field across the development uh, groups, which kind of span the 11 to 15 age group um, and the sprints group, which is sort of 16 to 19 before they transition to the the national team. I have a a secondary role as a performance support lead where I lead an interdisciplinary team um, to provide their services to the development groups. So psych, medical, nutrition, biomechanics, Data analysis, um, and then uh, in January I, I took on a new role as the, the head of talent identification. So that's in addition to those other roles in the, in the background, um, and that's overseeing the identification and and recruitment process uh, within a sort of pre academy setting, and looking at how who we who we bring into the Olympic sports side of Aspire. Uh, So uh, only obviously a a few months into that role, so the primary focus was picking up on the athletics recruitment, um, but the remit is across all of our our core Olympic sports, which includes fencing, squash, table tennis, motorsport and swimming, and it's quite an exciting project to be involved in as uh, Doha just won the Asian Games in in 2030, so the, the guys that we're recruiting in the next Couple of years, hopefully, we'll be uh, maybe starring in those in those uh, games for for Qatar.
0: That's class. Knowing that knowing that that's coming up and that's the kind of end goal. I suppose it was like that with the World Cup.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ten years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was I wasn't here at that time,
1: but we're we're getting very close to to that point now. We're what eighteen months away from from the World Cup actually happening, and you you know to see how things have come together and the, the boys that, you know, have come through Aspire Academy are in that Qatar national team and they've had success at the, they won the Asian football championship um, a couple of years ago. And those are boys that have come through the, the football side of Aspire uh, that uh, occupied a lot of that national team. And you now hopefully we can replicate that kind of success at the Asian games with, with the Olympic sports as well, in terms of our, our you know our transition of our athletes into into the senior national teams,
0: and just a small matter of a, a rebrand of yeah. performance to LTAD Network.
1: Yes, so
0: that's been ongoing among all of
1: uh, all of these job changes as well, which has been uh, an interesting an interesting period. Um, a lot of late nights working on that with with Mike and you know, our other our other business partner now Ben. Uh, but it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a really interesting process to work through from, from the business side. So yeah, excited to kind of get that project out there and, you know, helping, trying to help more people, uh, apply LTAD in, in their settings and, and, you know, sharing the good work that's being done around, uh, many parts of the, the world and building a a real global network at the moment of, of practitioners, which is, which is really cool to see kind of come together from the idea uh, that we, we discussed sort of middle of last year.
0: Sounds good, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to dive into the the different roles that you've begun to, to undertake. And I think yeah. this is really interesting because it's, an, it's another example of strength and conditioning coaches not staying strictly within strength and conditioning. I think this adds weight to the fact that we can be malleable and really useful in various different positions so yeah. what what do those roles entail that you spoke about two or three minutes ago and what's that transition been like for you into them different roles
1: yeah i think i think all of them have, have kind of been natural sort of evolutions from work that i've already been doing if if you know what i mean in terms of even the transition from you know uh, the school to aspire you know three and a half years ago it was like become very ingrained in the the strengthening conditioning side and move more away from the PE side. Um, and, and likewise here, I guess um, you know the the transition to the head of talent ID has, has come from a lot of the work that I've done in athletics around growth and maturation and understanding how how these kids develop um, uh, as they as they grow and grow and mature and you know also influenced I guess by my my understanding of uh, how kids learn from the PE background and how to develop skills as well as the you know the, the physical capacities so kind of understand having that hand in sort of sports science teaching and skill development and physical development kind of puts me in a good position to kind of head up that part of the the pathway and and really get into right how do we how do we Develop these athletes for these different sports. So, yeah, it seems to have been a, a natural transition. It, it hasn't felt like um, it's a stretch in other areas in terms of like managing people and you know having to to do maybe a bit more stuff at the kind of boardroom level, I guess, and making sure you've got clearance on what you're doing with various stakeholders and and not just you know I guess either having the freedom. That I had back at St. Peter's to just create whatever I wanted and, you know, you know, I still had to seek approval, but it was like there was a lot more free reign, whereas there's, you know, a few more uh not hoops, like well, yeah, I guess hoops to jump through to make sure you've got clearance in all the right places here, especially because of the level of the the programs that, that we're dealing with. But yeah, I guess breaking down into each of those positions, like the T I D aspect now. You know, my, essentially, my job is to find and develop the best athletes in Qatar for those Olympic sports with with the team of people that we have. Um, the focus, as I said, uh, of the work in the first or sort of three to four months has, has primarily been on the athletics program, and what that's involved is us going out into the local schools all over Qatar, literally out in the middle of the middle of the desert, and conducting a series of tests that incorporate jumping sprinting and throwing Uh, we take some anthropometric measurements to get kind of estimate of of maturation although you know there are some issues with using the the equation in our in our population that we'll we'll kind of discuss a bit later but but that that talent id process has historically been like a a three-stage process the bronze testing phase is where we go into schools and we conduct basic tests physical tests then the the silver phase they come in to aspire and they'll that that bronze phase when it's running at full capacity pre-COVID they were testing four to five thousand kids a year at sort of grade six which is the same as our kind of year seven at twelve to
0: thirteen
1: uh, sorry eleven to twelve back home and then because the the way the schooling system works you end up with a couple of older kids as well usually sort of thirteen um, as well coming through that process. And then that sort of funnels down into maybe like the top 200, 250. Um, And then that's a a kind of a two-day assessment at Spire where they'll do a similar set of physical tests, but under more sort of rigorous protocols and high-tech equipment. Um, And then that'll be whittled down then to maybe 60 that come to the the gold camp, which is then a bit more of a coaching process historically, uh, where the the athletes that we're really interested in we'll spend time with the coaches. They'll do some event coaching and those kind of things. So yeah, that, that's kind of the, the process that we've worked through. And then I guess I'm inheriting a, a system that's been in place for, I guess, 15, 15 years, approximately now. And, and that was you know, developed by a guy called Andrew Douglas. And he was uh, working with uh, Anthony, Hazel Dean as well, who took over when, when Andrew left, and then now Andrew's, uh, Anthony's gone, and, and I've, I've kind of inherited it. And their kind of emphasis uh, initially was on having these physical tests, so vertical jump, 40-meter sprint, and a seated medicine ball throw, to really identify high levels of, of general athletic abilities, so speed, power, upper body strength, that would make them i guess you know indicate a good athlete that could then be channeled towards different different sports within within the academy but i think what what they kind of realized over the years is that you know that it it works well for athletics but it it doesn't really work so well for the other core sports that are more skill-based and those guys need to have you know uh uh, a racket or table tennis uh, bat in hand like a lot earlier than grade six or grade seven um, and I think for a lot of those kids like the PE system is very different out here very very much you know in a in a, in a developing uh, phase um, and Um and they don't get exposure to some of that stuff before so to pick up a skill-based sport at 11 or 12 and then you know excel in it when they've not had that from an early age is, is is quite difficult they can get to a decent level but you know getting to world class is you know uh, a, a bit of a different ball game from from what I understand from the coaches but the uh, the process works well for athletics as I say that's kind of been the, the primary emphasis in the in the first few uh, in the first few months so yeah as we as we've kind of sh- what we've tried to do this year is just sort of shift around our our emphasis to we still are looking at the physical data, but we're also I've, I've tried to incorporate more coaching. And then when the when the selection processes occur at Gold, we've, we've kind of got our physical data from the previous phases. And then it's about looking at them in a competitive setting and also looking at them from a, a psychological perspective
0: with with those tests james i know you said that you were you had inherited them from the previous guys but why why those tests and would you consider anything additional to them i mean i think this is really good because it'll give people who don't particularly have any a lot of budget yeah an idea of, of why you're why you're doing these things you're doing because you have to travel around different schools which means you can't be Taking big tech and and whatnot, and it's got to be done on scale. So it'd be interesting to see what you'd add if you could, or if you had thought about adding anything else, and why those in the first place. I mean, I
1: guess there's probably some better people to ask what the initial decision making was, but I think you know, from my perspective, working in athletics and and thinking of it now, really as a that's our athletics talent identification. You know, speed and power rule the roost in. in, a, in athletics so if we've got an indicator from a, a vertical jump and a, and a sprint time that tells us most of of what we need to know from from an athletics perspective the, the tricky bit is is when you're doing at that age the, the maturational differences come into play and you know they're at an age where early maturers are at a distinct advantage over later maturers so we have to kind of try and factor that in when we look at the data not draw too many sort of hard lines in the sand, so to speak, and and kind of cut off points and and try and look at the results from a a maturation perspective as well. And that that I'd say is that's the the biggest thing that I've tried to do this year. It's not necessarily trying to change the tests or try and do anything too fancy. The the shift really has just been in how we look at the data and pulling that data in uh, from from the sprint test, from the jump test, then looking at the um the maturation status that we have to treat with caution because uh, it, it, as i say there is some some known error with of, of at least sort of plus minus six months and i think it could be uh exaggerated within our sort of ethnic population as well so i think it it was more looking at that and saying right well let's group this let's look at this data as a whole you know in terms of the the sort of age group that we're dealing with but then let's kind of group those test results by their maturation group loosely using the Merwald equation. So you now we're generally dealing with kids at this age between sort of minus 3 to 3.5 at maximum. And then in the opposite direction, it goes through to kids that are circa PHV, sort of 0.5 years from, from plus or minus PHV, um they, they kind of sit in that that whole kind of range and then so my yeah the change i implemented straight away was just like okay well let's let's look at this what are the results like in the med ball throw for boys in these different brackets so we just bracketed it naught to naught to minus one minus one to minus two minus two to minus three and minus three and and below and what you could see is actually like even with that, uh, analysis that there were significant differences in the performances of those, of those tests. So that just gave us a, a different way to evaluate it rather than just the absolute score. So for, I'll give you an example. If you've got a kid who's like circa PHV, you know, in the seated medicine ball throw, well, their torso is taller. Their arms are longer. So just from the point of release being higher, they're going to throw it further than a kid who is Shorter in the torso, shorter in the arm, and the ball is relatively heavier compared to his, you know, his overall body mass. So, you know, the, ki- the kids that are circuit PHV might throw the ball five meters, you know, between sort of uh, like four and five meters or if they're if they're very good. Um, and then in but those kids that are minus two or minus three years from PHV, like they're doing well if they throw it over three meters. So, you know, you have to kind of put it in context and go, right, okay, this kid is, I guess, some of them 30 to 35 kilos. He's throwing 10% of his body weight and from a from a lower point of release. And, you know, he's got it over three meters, which for him is, is, is very, very good. But if we don't look at it with that maturational side, then you kind of go, oh, he's no good. He only threw it three and a half meters. He's not going to be any good at throwing. And then the same applies with the uh, with the sprints. You get a very mature kid with the forty meters. He might run, you know, six seconds or, or maybe slightly under if he's really good. A later maturer might be running like six point five, six point six, but has the potential to kind of run faster in the future once he's gone through 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 PHV. So yeah, I think the yeah going back to the, I guess the initial point is it. I think the tests do work because of the, the sport that we're looking for. Um, I haven't made up my mind as to whether we do anything different yet in terms of physical tests. I think the thing I would, I, I would like to probably do is just, if I change anything, it would be see them doing some athletics rather than changing the tests and seeing whether they actually like athletics and want to compete or or not that's a more interesting thing for me and i'd probably look at doing it the other way around is like look at them doing athletics type events before and then add the testing after to confirm what we think we're seeing you know and and seeing them and seeing how they're coach how coachable are they how do they respond to the feedback how do they cope with you know the the pressure of of competition you know do they thrive or do they you know, do they kind of wilt under the, under those pressures? So that, for me, would be, yeah, probably what I'd change. Not, you know, I'd love to say, well, what I'd do is I I'd, I'd take Phil Graham Smith out and we'll take the steps <laughs> and we'll take the egg and we'll take the jump and we'll have a look at these kids in real detail. But the, the fact is, it's just not necessary and it's not efficient when you're trying to do that for you know a thousand plus kids like we did this year under under COVID restrictions as well. So you know, it's kind of filtering at the first stage and then getting into, um, yeah, getting, uh, getting down into the more detailed stuff then at, at the sort of silver and, uh, gold phases of that, that process.
0: I know we've spoke, I know we spoke before James about psychological profiling. Is this something that you do based on what you've just said on the importance of coachability, whether they actually want to be there, they're, Motivation, all that kind of stuff, and if so, would you also be incorporating that if you were a, in a more, I suppose, SNC traditional, traditional SNC job, either still in Qatar or here in the UK or anywhere else in the world?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you know this, the the cycle, psycho, the psychological side is, is is so important, you know, and it's it's important that we look at developing this, whether they're going to be an elite athlete or just a good person. You know, and yeah. someone who's able to sort of withstand the the rigors of, of life and and, and function in amongst other people, whether that's in the sporting world or the the working world. So I, you know, for me, it is something that we've obsessed uh, obsessed assessed objectively uh, within the uh, the gold camp this year. Uh, we had a new psych uh, arrive, a guy called John Page came over from from the UK. Uh, he started about a week or two before the gold camp so we roped him in straight away and said right we need need a need a a profile questionnaire and that that focused on coachability their sort of optimism towards sport we tried to dig in a bit to sort of what the parental support was there uh, what uh, that's there you know is, is there the support for them to be successful or is sport just not really a priority in their family and you know, they're not really supported because it's it's going to make things difficult for them to be truly elite if those if those things aren't in place over over the long term. And that so those are the, the kind of things that we tried to, to dig in with that. But coachability is a, a huge thing. Um, you know, how confident they are and that sort of naturally in their in their own abilities. But I think that's something that we've tried to implement. But even before I was in the talent ID side, and we were trying to look at it from a finding talent perspective, you know, it's definitely something that we're doing from a, a developing talent perspective within within the pipeline. Um, we have uh, a number of psychologists that kind of work in with there. One of the guys, uh, Matt Cullen, he introduced us to the five C's model by Chris Harwood. Um, I always forget one of the C's at least. So uh, I'll give you a rough rundown. Confidence, uh, communication, control, commitment, and did I say concentration? I think I said concentration. No, you didn't. No. Nope. I didn't. That's oh, maybe what, that was yeah, a five. Maybe by. I got the five. Jackpot. <laughs> so you look at that. That provides like quite a nice sort of overview of, of components that you would want to develop. And then I think there's other things that you can kind of add to that. And I, I think, you know, I, I, there's uh, things like creativity, craftsmanship, collaboration, like if you want to make it out, it's a sort of eight C's, those ones that I was introduced to through a book called Educating Ruby. And it, it's uh, Ed Archer recommended it to me, but it, it looks at sort of what kids really need to learn to be successful, not just the academic side. What should the school sort of process or a development pathway kind of include? And, and those features I think are are really important. And I think, you know, whether I was working in a school, working in Aspire, working in the UK, I think these are all things which are, are, are critically important to, to focus on. And there's some, some people out there doing some fa- fantastic work in the kind of, person development space as well as the, the sort of athlete development space. Guys like Kev Mannion at Gloucester, uh, he, he runs a fantastic program there where the kids get involved in all these community projects um, both through the club and outside working with people in the homeless shelters and those, those kind of things where you know these, these kids are getting life skills and life experience outside of the kind of academy bubble it's really, you know, we saw some fantastic changes in boys that were should we say challenging, interesting uh, cases to work with at the school? But like you know, a couple of years on in that program with Kev and you can just see how much they've you know matured and developed as people through the the experience they've had, not just through through rugby. And I think you know there it's it's an area which you know there's just so much so much to be gained if you if you do include it and i know there's guys then uh, at arsenal they they've come up with some interesting concepts uh i think it's academy island or arsenal island or something like that and there's this, this i think the graphic has, has has been shared either within a a journal or an article or, or social media but yeah they kind of have this concept of um different, the bay of boredom you know and the kids just indicate like what they're kind of feeling by moving to different parts of the island that have these different names that kind of describe it. Something to dive into with maybe Perry, Pauly, or Des or mm. Ivan or someone from there. But it's, it, you know, there's there's some great work going on in that space. Um, you know, it's certainly an area where I feel like I, I've, I've still got a lot to learn, but have the, the best crack at kind of incorporating it into the pathway. You know, and it, it, it doesn't have to just be sort of like these standalone aspects where you kind of go into a classroom and you talk about the concepts. it's those everyday kind of conversations around you know what are we working towards what what, what's the target for you in this session what's the target you know within this sort of competition or you know helping them understand you know concentration distraction uh control and you know making them aware of those things and we, we've done all sorts over the years concentration grids are quite a good tool where they have to, there's basically an A4 sheet of paper with numbers one to 100. We'll give them a time. Say, right, you've got 20 seconds to find as many numbers as you can, and you re- you record your score. And then we'll do other things like uh then we'll we'll get them to do it again to see if they can beat the score. But then start like talking to them or shouting or playing okay. music or something that distracts them yeah. and they don't get as high. And then you kind of like right, well, you know that's that's kind of emphasising the the concentration aspect of the five c's like how do you you know how do you control those distractions that's going to happen in the competition from the crowd or your opponents. so how do you zone out those things and really focus on on the task because it's just like things like that could kind of highlight concepts that are quite fun tasks that could just be done at the beginning of a session on a whiteboard or you know, laminated sheets or, or stuff like that so yeah hopefully a, a few ideas that are useful
0: there. 100% absolutely that's 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 super interesting and so how is so how are you developing the curriculum that is not only developing track and field athletes from a physical point of view but allowing that clear and obvious need for the, for the technical aspect as well and, and merging the two
1: yeah so i guess that that kind of takes us into the other part of the the roles really the s and c and 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 sports science side um so i think I guess to, to give it some context, when, when I arrived, there was you know, a development, a series of development groups in place. We had a, a foundation year program, which is our grade sevens, D1 and development one and development two, grade eight and grade nine. Um, and there were coaches in each of those, but it, it wasn't really kind of connected. There was, everyone was kind of doing their thing, like doing their coaching thing, taking the boys through the journey and Handing them off into into the performance groups, uh, but there was lots of disconnection in terms of what was being taught. From a, a skill perspective, there was lots of different approaches. From an S and C perspective, there was different approaches from a testing perspective, and this made it quite difficult to kind of, you know, look at data and understand trends of development and you know evaluate things. In the, in the context of growth and maturation because everything was being done at different times and there was good stuff happening, but it, we could, I could just see that it could all be connected um, a, a bit better. Uh, I, I landed at the same time as a, an athletics coach, um, Martin Brockman, and we, were, we worked together in the uh, development groups for a couple of years. So the aim, you know, that, that part of my role, it was about you know, my remit, initially was develop and deliver a an lgd framework that that fits our athletic pipeline but with martin taking care of the the technical skills on on that side of the curriculum and, and me putting in place the sort of physical development curriculum that that develops the physical capacity, capacities that are, are required for, for success in, in in track and field and then alongside that you've got the, the, the the aspect of developing the person from a, a psychological perspective as, as well. And that kind of all sort of fits together um, within that as well. My, my job was to sort of oversee the testing and reporting processes and, and how, how we use that, that data, using growth and maturation to understand the performance with age and, and maturation and biobanding. And then, you know, through that, also helping to identify what the athletes strengths uh, and, and weaknesses are uh, and guiding them towards you know events or other sports where 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 they've maybe got a greater a greater chance of of success but that was a you know quite a that was an interesting um sort of project to to, to work on alongside martin and and get i guess really into the the detail of of <laughs> You know, the the, the the technical side of the athletics event and then really try to find appropriate ways to, to develop the physical capacities alongside that.
0: How how interesting has that been for you jumping between the two, jumping between the S and C and the talent ID? And how have you I suppose how have you come to terms with with that, I mean you've gone from P kind of PE teacher to, to S and C coach, then you moved to guitar yeah. and you're still in that SNC position and then you've got this talent ID bit kind of on the side, but you've still got very much an SNC head on all the time and then and then yeah. f- kinda of going in between the two. Has that been a tough transition or has that been kind of logical progression based on what you were doing? I th- I think like I said before, I think it's just been a, a logical progression and a lot of what I
1: was doing in the performance support lead role around the growth and maturation side and aligning everything from a testing perspective. So there you know, although I said things were disconnected over the course of uh, the, the sort of two to three years, but like it gradually fell in place, but I had I had control over development of the foundation year development, what we now call development one, development two, development three. So I had control over the whole sports science approach uh, for the last sort of, I guess, 18 months looking after all of those groups and being able to align that testing data and take a more consistent approach to um, uh, monitoring the, the key physical qualities. So the things that we monitor are strength, power, speed, um, reactive strength. So being able to do that consistently and look at it from a, a growth and maturation with a, with a growth and maturation lens as well as the age group lens. But I was being drawn into all the talent ID conversations anyway, whether that was just, whether they're going to transition to throws, jumps or sprints or, or endurance from a uh, sort of a, a plus 16 perspective. Um, and I was getting, because people were aware of what I was doing, I was being pulled into the the younger conversations about who should we, we be bringing into the academy, and the head of athletics was aware of what we were doing from a from the bio banding side of things. And he was, it was, you know, just an, a kind of natural move to, to kind of go that way. And you now my head's still heavily in that space now because of the research that we're we're trying to do uh, in terms of growth and maturation and, and track and field. Uh, so it it all, to be honest, just feels. For, certainly on the athletics side of the talent idea it's just a continuation of what we're doing with some some extra responsibilities and i think i just you know having worked closely with the athletics coaches we can see what's required from a skill perspective we can see the the correlations between the physical tests and performance and we can look at those qualities from 11 through to 18 19 and and, and what what it takes i guess to to win and qualify for some of these higher level events there's some fairly clear thresholds that are kind of coming out like they don't all they don't have to excel in all of them in terms of the the strength power speed reactive speed they do but reactive strength they have different ways that they you know can achieve those high levels but um yeah it's just it it's all kind of come out of all of the work across all those areas, I guess, to, to be able to just flick between the the, the the three roles and it and it not feel too um, too daunting. That I guess the realms where it's a, a little bit more daunting are when we look across the other Olympic sports. They're not daunting. Is probably exciting as well when we look at things like motorsport and how we can, you know, how how do we approach that? it's a, it's a great kind of process to then have to think outside of the athletics box with those other sports too
0: so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with James hoping to join part one so more from James in part two where we cover more on the track and field side of things so looking less at the talent ID and more the senior SNC role that James has at the Aspire Academy so lots of great stuff coming up in part two with James but just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So, Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So, the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So, are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud based system from anywhere in the world. Head over to the website uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at HawkingDynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc. etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website which is blkboxfitness.com or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia. In the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Because you've got this LTAD head, which is where you, the space that you've been operating in for what seems like forever since we've been speaking years ago. Yeah. But then you've got then you've got this flip to national championships, Olympics world games all these kind of competitions and you've got to flip that to go we're actually producing young people that are going to compete and going to win at these kind of these kind of levels so do you want to dive into the, the work that you do with the sprints and the hurdles guys from an snc perspective yeah sure i mean I, i'm part of a you know in
1: all of these phases i'm part of bigger teams you know i'm, I'm one guy in in amongst six athletics coaches at. uh the development phase uh, there's another SNC coach Chris Brandner who, who's also involved in the delivery at, at that point and then at the sprints and hurdles team there's myself another SNC, Patrick Mills um, then the, the the sprints and hurdles coaches Ross Jess and, and Lee Christopher and then psychologist and uh, uh, sports science lead on that side Luke Gallagher as well um site guys Diaz. Um He's um, yeah. So the, that that whole team are around it. My my role is part of that as part of that group from the SNC perspective is you know the well the, sorry the whole team's role is to prepare those guys towards competition at, at an international level in in sprints and hurdles and that's kind of like the youth and junior age groups. So the guys go up to kind of under twenty and some of those guys. You know, at 1920, represented Qatar in the uh, Doha 2019 World Championships, either in uh, I think we had a guy in the 200, 100, and the and the hurdles, and the relay. Unfortunately, the relay got canned because one of them uh, pulled a hamstring in, uh, oh. in his individual event, so that the guys didn't get to race. Um, but there's been a number of guys, including. Uh, Basim Hamida now is on senior national team. Uh, Mahamat Khalid is uh, also on the uh, uh, senior sprints team. So these guys are, are coming out of that pathway and heading head to that level. And I guess that what, what that kind of entails is the development phase is about setting up skills broadly from a, a technical perspective. They do multi-event, running, jumping, throwing, we do all the physical, trying to fill all the buckets, I guess, from a physical perspective in the S&C. And then when you get to the the the, the performance groups where they've kind of specialised towards sprints and hurdles, is then building on everything that we've put in place in the in the development phase. So pushing the physical capacities now to to meet the the demands of the sport and, and what we kind of understand it takes it takes to win from a, a strength and power perspective, maximising the strengths that they have, and kind of minimising their weaknesses, making sure that they're robust enough, with some physical capacity testing um, around sort of key muscle groups that that we know are, are potentially problematic in in athletics. It's primarily lower body stuff: calf, hamstring, glute, trunk, adductors. Those uh, those, those are capacities that we would that we would look to check off kind of early in early in the year before we, we kind of really get after like the, the high relative strength and power that we know they need to be able to produce and to be able to produce those things extremely quickly in, in short brand t- contact times. And it becomes a I guess it, it depends on the coach's kind of philosophy at that stage as well about how they kind of want to to develop those those sprinters, what they kind of see as what they'll do on the track versus what they'll do in the gym. Um, there's obviously with a, well, I'm, I'm comfortable coaching, speed, plyometrics, strength, power work, but they you know, you kind of, the coach also is very comfortable in coaching those, those things. And <laughs> being an athletics coach and someone both, you know, Ross and, and Lee both have clear ideas about how they would also do that because they've been doing it for years, either as athletes and working with coaches and, so it's a, it's really a, a, a real joint effort between us all as a, as a, a team around those athletes to kind of determine what is, what is appropriate. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the aim through the process, and again, it's another kind of three year process from 16 to 19 or 20. You know, a lot of the guys were looking to, to qualify for, for world under 20s and, Prepare them for that transition to the senior national team. So there's another layer of development of psychological uh, psychological skills. Put the coping strategies in place with Jaime, um, and then yeah, transition to to national teams. But another big part of that phase is that in order to achieve those um, those performance levels, there's also a lot of time that those guys will spend out on. On camps during the year, they'll usually travel at least twice a year to compete uh, in competitions that are, are kind of bigger and more challenging than, than what we that, than what we get here, like locally. Um, they'll compete regionally as well, sort of in the Arab region, but they'll they'll get out into Asia and and Europe as well at, at times of the year to make sure that they're you know, that they've got an opportunity to. To develop, be challenged, and and also to, to run the standards that are required to to kind of qualify to, to some of these major competitions.
0: You mentioned a couple of times about what it takes to be get get to get to that level from a from a physical perspective, and yeah. the benchmarks. Can you dive into that, or is that something we're going to potentially come to later uncover?
1: No, no, no. I think we I think we uh, I think we definitely can sort of touch on it. I mean, you know, I, I looked at. Um, things that, or whenever I'm trying to look into these things, I look at what other people are doing in other areas of the world and looked at some of the stuff from the EIS and Michael Johnston's presentation within the the UKCA um, conference a few few years ago for for sprinters and jumpers. They have a a threshold of 80 watts per kilo in terms of relative power is where they're trying to get to. And and we kind of see a, a clear sort of, uh, I guess pipeline towards that all the way through the, the development processes and it, it seems to be you know from a from a world under 20s perspective like these kids if they can put out 70 watts per kilo in a counter movement jump that's a, a good indicator of their their um, I guess their raw physical qualities. Um, in a, in a not, it's not obviously specific to the event, but it's a, it's a good indicator. And most of the guys that have qualified kind of hit that that kind of marker and higher towards towards the 80 watts as well. And obviously, there's a ongoing process then to take them beyond that, but that's probably something that will occur post post aspire. Uh, we see some we we monitor 10.5 uh rebound jump to for, for our RSI measure as well as drop jumps. Uh, in the older groups but again we've tried to align the testing all the way through the group so we can look at how that develops longitudinally but yeah again it, it varies from athlete to athlete and you get some athletes that are, are more elastic some that are more concentric in, in nature some will really excel in the counter movement jump the guys that really excel in the in the ten 5 uh, we, we'd see rsi numbers using flight time and, and contact time above 4.0, and guys that are really talented probably closer to five. but we've got some young guys at the moment that are up around sort of 4.7, 4.8 uh, on on that RSI. Um, and then obviously from a from a speed perspective, we're talking about you know guys that can run 10 plus meters per second at at, at this age group, or or you know the younger guys, the good the the younger guys that sort of hover. Nine to nine to ten as they transition into that into that sprints group, but you know our, our our top guys are getting closer to eleven meters per second, ten point ten point seven, ten point eight when they when they kind of transition out. Um, so yeah, and then those are those are kind of the the physical things that that we would look for. But I guess you know in in athletics the the key thing is the 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 distance you jump, the height you jump, or throw or, or sprint that's ultimately the the the, the true measure of, of success in in our you know in our sport but those are the kind of physical things that we would see underpin it underpinning it but each athlete kind of particularly at that older sprint age group you kind of see you know ross ross has a really nice concept around like sprint typing so this mm-hmm. sprint typing concept is that you know, you've got guys that are more concentric, elastic, or uh, I think the terms they use, uh, metabolic or, or, or fascial. And you kind of see that these guys are what they can achieve, like the f- similar results in terms of the track, on the track, like in terms of final time, uh, 60 or 100 meters. But, but how they get there and do that is is very different. So, you know, you've got some of the concentric guys that really dominate the first 30 meters of the race and the uh, the the elastic or, or metabolic guys are kind of slower to start but then what you see is that those elastic guys when they when they're upright running and and it's all about the the stretch shortening cycle and, and rapid ground contact times and, and utilizing more eccentric forces they just come into their own in the 60 to 100 phase and they just they just bounce down the track, whereas some of those concentric guys are just hanging in there. You know, they're, they're not, they're not built to banks. They're built to, to really push. And, and yeah, they, they, they don't look so good at the end of the race, but you know, they can finish in a, in a similar time because they've dominated the first 60, say. So it's, it's interesting to kind of see that. And then, you know, we, we try and tailor what we're doing from a training perspective as well to fit, fit those guys and and allow them to emphasize their strengths um and you know not not do things that kind of suppress their their natural talents We're try to find things that support them at that phase while still trying to tap into check off some of the things which are, are more perceived kind of weaknesses i guess in their their profile is
0: there any, is there any... Small examples that you can give of, of from a training program perspective how they might differ.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so we got one lad. We had a a couple of lads this year who are very different, very very different, and and I think part of what comes into this, and it's probably something to dive more into with Ross at some <coughs> point. And uh, he, he's he's really good at explaining it. But um, uh, like the anthrop the anthropometry of the athlete. You know and the sort of somatotype type of the athlete I, I think is a is a factor in this. so you know the guys that are a bit more mesomorph, a lot of muscle, they're guys that you know they like to push, they also guys that seem to like a bit more time on the ground you know in terms of their their rebound jumps. Um, you've got uh, then the the slimmer, more I guess meso slash ectomorph types that are a little bit lighter. And that plays into them being a little bit more elastic and 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 lighter on the ground, um, not so much muscle, you know more more tendon driven I guess in in a lot of what they they do um, but yeah the t- the training so the the concentric guys like we would do a lot more heavy work, heavy concentric lifting. they seem to kind of thrive off off that. so we had one of the guys we got back after the the COvid break um it, like made his major lift that kind of has stayed in all year is the back squat that worked really nicely for him driving up his 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 relative strength levels coming back in uh off a off a obviously prolonged break with with lockdown but then knowing that that was like the kind of main driving factor for him, we kept that inconsistently, but then we had a lot of aspects of his training that were also geared up more to that concentric element that we knew he excelled at. So you know, he's got decent counter movement jump coming in. He, I think his counter movement jump was about 45 or 45 centimeters hands on hips with um, watts per kilo around, I think he was around sort of 60 watts per kilo, something like that. But yeah, he, through the phase, we had aspects of his program where it was more like concentric orientated jump, loaded jumping. So trap bar jumps just with um, a sort of step down in load through the set. So we'd start off with 40 kilos, 35 kilos, and then two sets at 30. We'd have the gym aware on that and just kind of get him to move those loads faster and faster week on week. That was the aim. It wasn't like trying to get it heavier. It was just let's move these loads quickly from deep angles that were, were really, um, you know, feeding into to what he he does well, had some Olympic lifting stuff in there. And then we'd have you know, other aspects of the programme that were just sort of about general health and, and wellness around the, the, the hamstrings, calves and, and glutes. Um, and what we saw with him is this, this huge jump in, in performance from uh, just within the, like the CMJ particularly, and also his sort of split times in, in, the, in the shorter distances at zero to 60. We've got a bit of work to do with him at the back end. But the cat movement jump went up nine centimeters in one block. Went from forty-five <laughs> to fifty-four, and it was nearly at seventy watts per kilo in in it. And you know, we had another athlete that was on, I guess, on a similar program, and we were we were we were kind of trying to check off some boxes from a, a I guess a, a general perspective, get his relative strength levels up. Um, but he was a different type of athlete. He was, he was definitely more of the the elastic type. And we kind of chipped away at that for a few months, but he just didn't respond in the same way to the other guy. You know, his, his sprint numbers weren't changing for the positive. You know, they were just sort of flatlining. His jump numbers were staying fairly similar. And for, you know, there's, there's not a kind, you can't tell immediately. You can have your inclination about what, what will work and, and what won't based on kind of what you've seen of them from the, the previous years but yeah these guys kind of yeah there's a little bit of trial and error with what works for them and for this guy on a similar program to the other but no you know a little bit more um yeah he wasn't working at quite the same sort of strength levels so it's a little bit adjusted down but he just he just weren't we weren't seeing the positive changes in jumping Metrics, sprinting metrics as, as we did with the other guys. So we kind of switched it up and went for some more partial ranges of movement, a bit more elastic type work, some, some, uh, uh, repeat loaded jumps, sort of stretch, again, things that tap into the stretch shortening cycle and the things that he was, he was good at, some, some loaded pogos, some, some partial single leg, partial range, um, single leg work and, all of a sudden his numbers start to creep up because we're giving him things that that really suit him and that, you know, some of the heavier lifting that we were trying to do with him was dampening the the system, I guess. You know, it, it, he wasn't able to, to deal with it in the same way that the other guy was because, it, you know, it was what fed the beast in terms of the concentric mm-hmm. guy, but it kind of suppressed the, the elastic uh, things that made this guy ic- excel at uh, in in his own sort of way so it's kind of yeah a, a bit of a trial and error process to get there um, and you don't really know what you've got until these guys come out of phv you know and you and you see a m- mature frame and you see what kind of muscle they've laid down when the testosterone hits um you know that and and that can take a uh, you know takes 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 some time before you, you can kind of see things in the way that they do things like the 10 five jump like how what sort of time do they spend on the ground is it you know if they're in the the really elastic guys that can that have got the, the springs will will be off the ground somewhere between 120 and 140 milliseconds in that 10 five jump the concentric guys might be 160 to to 200 in in that uh, and you can, you can, you can get that down obviously with, with, with plyometrics, but there's a, you know, a, a kind of it seems to be with those younger groups, uh, you can see some kind of natural tendency to, to want that, that time on the ground or, or, or not need it at all. And that kind of creates a bit of a picture of what you, you think that that is going to work for them down the line. But again, as I said, you have to kind of wait and see what the the body becomes post post phv.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to take a, a little bit of a step back and yeah. I guess when you get into a new role any new role especially when you're in a different country you'd come into a program and you kind of carry on what's that? What's there? And you, you you mold things over time. I suppose now you're in a time where you have done that and you have molded and and adjusted certain things. But in mm-hmm. terms of the athletics pathway, what have those what have those things been? And, and why have you gone the way you've gone in terms of putting your own stamp on the on the pathway?
1: Yeah, I think you know. I think the the first thing to probably consider when you move into a new role and you're trying to shape something is. Is kind of how how do you do that? And you know, there's always challenges along along the way to making changes, especially when you come into an environment like Aspire, where there's a lot of people who are very very good at what they do, and they're there because they've been successful at, at what they do, and they have their way of kind of doing it. So for me, it was about trying to it was evolution and, and not revolution, not trying to change too much too quickly, or you know, as people would say, not rocking the boat. Um, and trying to look for some early wins with some, some kind of low hanging fruit that, that could have an impact and then help build people's trust, I guess, in my, my skills and abilities, uh, and build buy in with those people that are, are essentially the decision makers in the, in the pathway. Um, and things, you know, that comes from having lots of discussions, uh, questioning, watching, observing. Uh, you know, making suggestions, just kind of piloting some, some ideas rather than, you know, trying to make wholesale changes and, and, and switch things up. But, you know, I think from, from my side, you know, uh, as an example of one of the things it kind of brought in with my P teacher hat on, I came in and I could kind of see, you know, the organizational part of the, the weight room was, wasn't as good as it, as it could be. It wasn't say there wasn't good things happening. But there was a lot of big groups and lots of kids moving around the gym so one of the early wins was just like right okay let's 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 really think about the flow of this session and how we transition from warm-up to the main component of the session how we group the athletes and get them to work in the space and understand how to work with training partners and do things properly and you know fill in their programs and all the the kind of boring bits in, in in some people's minds but things that have a huge impact on, on what that session, um, what that's, uh, how that session goes in terms of the, the, the behavior, in terms of the quality of the work done. If you get all that stuff in place, you can do a lot more coaching, uh, not just herding cats (laughs) in a, in a, in a gym environment with with the young guys. So we put a lot of emphasis on, who was we're thinking about who's gonna work with who, what platform are they on, what platform are they on in relation to those other kids that we know that if they get too close to, they're gonna they're gonna talk and, you know, mess around and they they actually are more interested in swinging on the lap, pull down and kicking Swiss balls around the gym than they are actually training. So, you know, it's those kind of organizational things early on that that helped me kind of win over some of the the coaches, like, oh yeah, you know, I remember the one coach just but one day just absolutely had enough in the gym. He was just like, I can't work with these guys in India. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going home. And, uh, yeah, we kind of uh, the next time we kind of put, put this framework or organizational aspect in place came back in and he was just like, it's completely different. You know, we've actually coached today. We can see what's happening. They, they, we can see that they've learned. They were learning before and they were, they were. Getting stronger and everything else. But, you know, it was, it, we, we just took control of the session. And that, you know, I think was was a big step towards them then, like, okay, this guy knows how to work with kids. What else does he know? Okay. And, and it kind of, you know, they, they kind of got to know my approach to, to physical development. And then it was like, you start to be able to shape a little bit more, probably after the first month. First month, I was kind of just observing. But, you know, Ken, my, uh, my, my dad always used to say to me, like, wherever you're working, he said, make people's job easier, not harder. You know, and if you're, if you're making people's job harder, you're probably going to struggle to, you know, implement things that you want to implement or even, you know, from a career perspective, progress. You know, you, you need to be someone that, that is working for solutions and trying to make things better. Not, you know, going against the people that are, are there and, and, and making it more, more challenging for them. Um, and then the other, the other big thing for me uh, linked into a lot of what we did in terms of aligning the testing data and everything, uh, and, and, you know, in putting in place certain tests. That was all about in, improving people's ability to make decisions, providing better data and insight faster that enabled them to, Make decisions around that talent identification stuff. Make decisions about right. Okay, this kid looks like he does have like the real physical potential to excel in sprinting and jumping. This kid, you know, looks like he's got you know the strength qualities that we that we want for for a thrower. Maybe these kids don't appear to have that, uh, but they don't have it yet. We can see they're late developers. We need to give them a little bit more time in the system to um continue to to develop and 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 see if they can show us those physical qualities that they they need for success and now we can kind of look at the maturation levels to to judge that so those are the kind of things and i tried to, to kind of really focus on doing and then over time yeah i guess you you gain people's uh trust and they they trust the information that you're providing and yeah, I said it's making their their job easier um, for for their their role within the the organisation. One
0: thing that like, you mentioned, oh, go on, mate, go on yeah. carry on. No, 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 no. Carry on. No, no. I'm I was gonna it, I was sorry. gonna mention the I was gonna mention the testing because I know we've spoken yeah. about that a little bit already. But you carry on. I'm sure we'll get to that, and I can I can jump in if needed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm conscious of making we've we've jumped around a little bit, so I don't want to go over um too much of what we we talked about before. Um, but yeah, I guess you know the things that we we changed were like I mentioned that development of the the clear curriculum from a technical and a and a physical perspective, and and making that kind of uh outlast us is the aim. You know, because our all of our time here at Aspire is is probably relatively temporary compared to the the system of aspire most people stay in Qatar sort of two to three years and I think that's why we when I when I got there I kind of inherited this system that was um a little bit disjointed not unproductive but just not as aligned as it could be and that was because people transition out after two to three years they end up working here then they you know, they get set up with the 50 degree heat in the summer or whatever else. And they're like, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll get out of here now. That's enough of that. Um, so you, you what we what we try to do is build the curriculum in a way that it would be a kind of legacy. It wouldn't just disappear. It's a framework that even though like Martin, who handled the technical side, has moved on uh, into the senior jumps group. Like that framework's still there and helps to guide the other coaches now around what. What needs to be done? And I guess, you know, what you have is you might have one pathway. There are many, many journeys through it, but within that, there are some key skills and physical qualities that just have to be developed year on year. It doesn't change that much. There's individual differences based on what they come in with from their training history and perspective, but they are you know, they're they're fairly consistent. And if you have a curriculum that outlines those things, you're not having to reinvent the wheel every year and reinvent a training plan. There's a guide as to, to kind of what needs to be developed. And likewise with the testing, it's, you know, those things that are required for success in track and field, they don't change year on year. And if we get a consistent set of tests that we know are reliable and we know are valid and we know what the meaningful changes are, then we can use those tests um again and again and and then start to understand the, the trends and the, and the data so you know for me it was about aligning that process through as much of the pathway as possible being able to develop clear benchmarks for age and maturation but doing that in a way that was uh amenable to the coaches and then those physical tests that we do use um, consistently through the pathway of the 10-5 rebound jump test for an RSI measure, how quickly these guys can transition from eccentric to, to concentric, how efficient they are with that. We use an isometric leg press for peak force, and we use a uh, counter-movement jump on the force plate to measure jumping and, and relative power. And then we have a 50-meter sprint where we look at splits at 5, 10, 20. 30, 40, 50, and uh, we take a maximal velocity and uh, we'll look at flying segments. We'll look at distance at, at max velocity. Uh, so a few things that we'll, we'll get into there. And, and then it, it's about, I guess, what the coach wants to see and how they want to see it, and, and making sure that that information gets to them in a way that, that they kind of, of under, they, they understand. And then to do some of that stuff that we we're talking about, the age and maturation benchmarking, it also requires a consistent approach to, to maturation. And, and that was something that we didn't have before, um, not again, not not because people weren't trying to do it, but because there were there were changes in staff and changes in procedures that kind of made it made it difficult to then draw conclusions. And when you've got patchy maturation data and, and testing data that's coming from different tests, you can't really look at it over the long term and say, well, this is this is how this physical de- quality typically develops, and it's harder to understand what to what to kind of expect. So, yeah, the, the maturation side of it, we there, there was a lot of use of the Merwald equation early on, um, and what I did was I looked at the actual what was done consistently was height and weight measurements. So I looked at the height measurements over over time and I looked at the growth rates and I looked at how the growth rates mapped with that the dates of the Merwald equation uh I put the years from PHP and the actual growth rates at at the, the same time points and what I could see was that in in some cases those those things were 2 years apart so the kids had been wow. through PH, PHV at like 11 or 12. And the Millward was predicting that they would, you know, go. they were going through PHV at, at 13 to 14. And, you know, there, I, that was a, a big sort of red flag for me. Now, there were certain boys that it was it was spot on. But we just, when you've seen how far out that is, it's difficult to then be confident in that equation. So we started to, we, we have... Obviously, the option to do a wrist X-ray here at, at We and we do get that. But though, you know, more recently, there's been concerns about the amount of radiation exposure. So, getting that on a yearly basis is, is just, you know, not not been possible. So, we were stuck between this kind of situation where we could see the murals was wildly inaccurate in our in our population, probably. Due to ethnic differences, the Merwald was calc- uh, produced from a, 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 a white, uh, I think, British or Canadian um, population, and, and we're dealing with Middle East, North African um, descent that that possibly mature a little bit earlier and um, don't hit the same kind of growth rates from from what we've we've seen. It's maybe just slightly lower uh, than the, the some of the the peaks that you see in those other other populations. Um, and then the Karmis Roach, where you use parent height, just isn't really possible, just due to cultural challenges to, to get those those parent heights and and then be be accurate. So, you know, we were kind of stuck in a place where we were like, right, well. It took me two years, I think, to work out like how how we could do it, and it was lots of chewing and froming between me and the medical team, and and I could I was trying to explain to the the docs. Uh, Dr. Maurizio uh, Monaco was like, I think we can do this. We can really use it from a performance perspective. We need the skeletal age. And he was like, you don't don't need the skeletal age. We've got the predicted adult height off the the X-ray. Just use that in the same way that, you know, they'd use it off the Karmis-Roach equation. Um, And the Karmis-Roach equation is a a solution to skeletal age, uh, the X-ray and the, the predicted adult height not being readily available for most people. So he was like, you know, this this will probably be a better, a better measure anyway. So we started then to use the percentage of predicted adult height um, from that. So we plot their current height against what the X-ray was telling us the predicted height was. Um and that opened then the door to us doing this biobanded analysis in line with kind of what you see in the literature from guys like Sean Cummings that you see in football. So pre-PHV being 85% and below approaching phv 85 to 90 percent circuit phv 90 to 95 and then 95 and above being post phv so that then just opened the open the door to us like using the same kind of system that was being used with um, uh the premier league football clubs but specifically for athletics so now we're able to kind of look at not only those physical tests in 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 light of those different maturational bands, but we can also look at the competition data within those maturational bands because we're you know consistently collecting the the competition results as well and that that has probably been you know some of the most impactful stuff we've managed to to do is 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 look at that and go right okay well we've got an early developer or we've got a late developer. How are they performing to other?" compared to other boys that we've had in the past way at, at, that, at that stage of, of development. And rather than just, you know, looking at outcome, which is essentially what the outcome time or the outcome distance or the, the outcome height. And, you know, basically in, in athletics, the, the biggest, fastest, most mature win, you know, at, at a youth age group, particularly when the timing of maturation can be, you know, so different. So I think those are those are things that, that have, are the things we've really changed from a testing perspective is a lot of it is the, te- the tests that were being done, we've just tried to do it as consistently as, as possible across all the groups and make sure that we don't miss data, we don't miss date, uh, data points and, and things like that. Um, and then uh, from a, another point that we use uh, from a maturation perspective is that we we use a saliva testosterone measure in line with our anthropometric, anthropometric um, measurements, and that gives us an, in, an indication, um, another indicator of, of their maturation status. So there's some fairly clear levels within um, within what what readings we get. Like if they're if they're really pre-PHv, you're, you're going to see a saliva testosterone testosterone level of below 50 picograms per milliliter. And if they're post-PHV, it's going to probably be over 150 picograms per milliliter. So if we're, you know, if if for whatever reason we're not able to get an X-ray or we're not able to, uh, you know, they've, they've missed part of it, we can get an indication from something like that. And, you know, although we're not getting another X-ray, you know, we can kind of we can kind of see when those things are changing and look at. Look at the, the changes in testosterone. We look at the, the actual growth rates, things that are happening on a on a from a, sort of a quarterly basis. But like, uh, is the growth rate going up, and does that match with what the 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 predict the percentage of predicted adult height is saying? So is it is it accurate? Again, it's it's like checks and balances around those measures. And then you know from I guess you know you probably tell we're collecting a lot of information. Uh, the other the other key thing that I focused on was like making this data available quickly to coaches and and doing that um, in a in a, uh, in a a dashboard. So we we built that out in in Power BI. All of those key physical metrics, all of the growth and maturation stuff, all of the the, the competition data is is in the dashboards as well, and then all of it comes from all these different sources, pulls into one report uh, within Power BI that the, the coaches can then flick through nice and easily rather than fishing through spreadsheets for, for these numbers. And you know, each boy has a profile within that. Um, so they can, yeah, we can we can clear when we're having meetings and we can look at how they're tracking, we can just pull the dashboards up and kind of look at, okay, what is it this kid needs to work on from a from a physical perspective or, How is he performing? Where do we where do we think he's going to where do we think he's going to go? And again, that that was probably a two to three year building project to kind of get that dashboard where we wanted, uh, getting all the tests in that we wanted and making sure that things work smoothly. Fortunately, we've had some good mentors on that side in terms of Kenny McMillan and Marco Cardinale Mm. to to help me build that out. Uh, and, And Jack Andrew as well has been been fantastic. Uh, and I, I regularly do something which ruins the whole thing. Go crying to Jack. Go crying to Jack to save my ass. So, uh, yeah, regularly, regular, regular sort of the team effort to keep that thing up and running.
0: I'm conscious that all that sounds absolutely amazing, but there's plenty of people out there who'll think, "Yeah, but James, I've I've just not got the budget. I'm in a school. Yeah. I'm in a." lower category football club even a higher category football club may not have the have the um, facilities to be able to do some of the stuff that you've just talked about so how can those people take what you've done in with the facilities and the resources that you've got but get similar information with more budget solutions let's say
1: yeah look i've been in that complete opposite position i'm i'm currently in Aladdin's cave of sports science, but I've also been in a, a state secondary school with zero budget, doing vertical jumps with chalk on the wall and, you know, standing broad jumps with a with a with a tape measure and, and things like that. So I I know what it's like at both ends of the spectrum, but I think there's some there's some key sort of principles I guess that you, you need to apply regardless of whether you're using high tech equipment and and things or, or not. And and that is whatever you are collecting, collect it consistently. You know, what we're doing from a maturation perspective is we're we're obviously trying to push the boundaries, but you can do the karmis roach from from the parent's height and get the same percentage of predicted adult height band. Um, You can just do regular height and weight measurements. You know, that's a lot of of what we use, even though we've got all the fancy stuff around it. We're looking at actual changes in height, actual changes in weight to to see where pHV and peak weight velocity are occurring. Because everything else is an estimation but that is actually what is happening at that time and whether it's you know changes in leg length which also height you can you can look at those things as well and, and and that's you know you watch that unfold you know just by taking your regular height measures so as long as you commit to doing that on a regular basis like you can do a lot of a lot of what we're doing without the, the bells and whistles and then you know from a from a testing perspective Yeah, settle on your jumping test. Maybe it's, you know, okay, you could be, you could have one of the apps, the jump apps, or, you know, maybe you've got a basic contact map that you can, you can do that with and you can get a lot of the same, uh, information out of it. If you don't have a contact map, you can do standing broad jump and standing triple jump to look at the differences between a concentric and, you know, more elastic task and, you know, are the, what are the kind of ratios of those, those, those jumps. You know are they someone that really excels at standing broad jump but doesn't excel in standing triple jump? Well, you know that could be something then that tells you need to do a little bit more plyometric work with 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 that athlete in the same way that we would use the the ten five test to tell us about reactive you know reactive strength. And there's some some great coaches like Vujcevic Exnader that you know use that as that's that's what some of his key sort of jumping tests the the ratio of that standing broad jump to standing long jump. Um, you know, um squat jump and counter movement jump and the elastic utilization ratio. You can, you can do those things just, I used to do that with literally chalk on the wall and a tape measure at, at St. Peter's before we had it and then see like, oh, okay, well, you know, this kid's squat jump and counter movement jump are the same. We, we need to do some, some work on, you know, more, more elastic quality. So you can, you can you do things like that. You know, you could have a, from a sprint tested perspective, you could hand time stuff. It's not perfect. Uh, get your hands on a, on a, on a basic timing system. Again, there's, there's apps and stuff that can, that can do that now and other systems that are, are, very flexible with, with what you can, what you can do. Uh, things like output and push that, you know, are kind of, you know, giving you access to a lot of these metrics, jump height RSI, you know, and, and output even, you know, from a, a sprint measurement, you know, and, and you're talking about under 500 euros i think for for access to that it's you know it's not it's not tens of thousands of pounds to to get access to some of that equipment from a strength perspective you know looking at brett max testing you know or just you know i tend to do rep max testing just from working loads in in the gym look at look at that but you can also you know you can get your own iso testing with you know a, a crane scale uh uh, a bar and a, and a and a plate that you fix to the floor, and if you're working in a school, go and see your your um, tech department or your
0: design tech uh, teacher.
1: Yeah, tech teacher. Yeah, go see him and say, you know, I need this. Can we get it? Or even, you know, some of the uh, uh, the caretakers and things. You know, they'll 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 help you build this stuff. And that was what we did. A, a lot of it back back in St. Peter's was just. You know, using all the people around us and the resources, to, but then settling on stuff and, and sticking with it and not chopping and changing it all the time. You know, OK, we're going to go with this. We're going to measure it, stick with it consistently. And then you can see the data and do it across all the groups and then change it subtly over time, pilot test new things. But also, you know, I think. There's so much to be gained as well by building partnerships with the universities locally to, to, to schools and settings and clubs that don't have that. You know, you've got some fantastic sports scientists and, and lecturers in, in that space that can provide unbelievable support and access to equipment that, you know, all the equipment that we've got at Aspire, but without, without the cost. And the university gains a lot because, you know, they've got great learning opportunities for their students and meaningful partnerships within the community. You know, for them, they stand to maybe gain a few students from your from your program into their pathway if they have a if they you know have a positive experience with it or you know, that could involve going to the university for testing days. We used to we used to do that. Um and uh, uh, yeah, so I think there's 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 lots of ways and means. You just got to kind of get out there and answer the questions and. Uh, the answer, ask the questions and have you know those conversations with those people that are there and and say look this is what we're trying to do we don't have the resources to do it would you be interested in partnership part, partnering up with us to to get this thing moving and you know more often than not the answer will be yeah they'll 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 do that and if they don't try the next one
0: absolutely there's plenty of universities. <laughs> going yeah. around with uh, wanting to get students so yeah anything that can, can tick a box for them in association with a club and association with a college school whatever it may be given these experiences so, yeah great call great call thanks tuning in to episode 345 of the pacey performance podcast hope you enjoyed the chat with james big thanks to him for giving up his time it was a logistical nightmare with the heat over in Qatar to uh, to line it up and make sure we got everything right but it was a pleasure to uh, to get james on and get it done also big thanks to hawking dynamics to I you black box fitness kitman labs and perch for sponsoring this episode today The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really, really do appreciate their support. So thank you for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week for a part two with James.